Hi there. Welcome to the fray. We're about to embark on a new podcast series. You know, don't hold me to this, but probably eight episodes long, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. All about the 19th century French mathematician Evariste Galois. One of my favorite stories to tell. So today's episode being an introductory episode, we're going to cover sort of an overview of the agenda and what we're going to cover when we talk about this gentleman from France. And then we'll go ahead and get into some more details about his life and where he lived and how he lived in the next subsequent episodes. So again, if you're new, welcome. If you're a returning visitor, welcome back. And join me as we enter the fray. I have no time. These four words, simple and to the point, are all that is needed to sum up the life of Everest Galois. Those four words have echoed through history since they were first scrawled into the margins of his mathematical proof in 1832. The math and the words combined to create one of the most dramatic and enigmatic stories in all of human intellectual history. I have no time. You can practically feel the desperation coming off the words. This is because Galois was, in a sense, correct, as he would be dead less than 24 hours later, but not before assembling in a series of three papers a new way to look at and use algebra that ushered in our modern world run by computation and automation. So let us take some time and enjoy one of the best stories ever. It has all you could want in a story, inspired comedy, devastating tragedy, an unsolved mystery rife with conspiracy, passion, unrequited love, algebra, violence, mayhem, duels, and in the end, redemption. So you're ready for a good story? Now, I love a good story, but who doesn't? But when I say it, I mean it. The term love is not used as a throwaway term when it comes to a good story. I love a good story with every fiber of my being. In many ways, taking away the requisites like air, water, sleep, and family, I would place a good story fifth. Ahead of food, in fact, in level of importance in my life. And that is saying something as I like to cook a good meal from time to time. Overall, I have strange priorities. I always have. My mother told me once that I was hard to discipline because I don't value anything. Now, I disagree that I don't value anything, but she does make a point. I have a very unorthodox value system. Stuff like books, music, and movies make my top 10 requisites for living. But I could easily consolidate those things all into my need for good stories. When I was younger, I attempted to live my life as if I was writing my own good story. To clarify, I'm not using the term good to signify in any way any sort of morality to the story. In my universe, a good story is a morality-free zone. That is not to say that a story needs to be about messed up stuff for me to find it interesting or good. But by that same token, a story can be all about something bad and I would not judge the tale's worthiness simply on whether or not I agree with the choices and actions taken over the course of the story. Now, as I was saying in my youth, I tried very hard to live an interesting life. And I do have some really great stories from that period. But over time, I was finding myself pushing the envelope more and more in order to live that all-important good story. As I ramped up the intensity of my experiences, consequently, the consequences became more intense. Over time, I found out that I would not be able to last living a life that was a good story, or at least a good story defined by me. That was because a good story, for me at least, involved extremes. If I wasn't dancing out there on the margins, I was not enjoying myself. Living a life of extremes can quickly run you into the ground, I found out. No more good stories if I was not around to enjoy them. So I settled down. I got married. Over two decades later, I would not say that I've 100% settled down, but my day-to-day life is no longer about extremes. I have learned over time to live vicariously through history and the crazy-ass extremes of other men and women. It is in their extreme lives and deaths that I get my good story fixed now. 
It is a much more benign way to experience something, I'll admit, but one of the more interesting facets of using my imagination to relive some of history's most extreme stories is that in using someone else's story, especially one from history, is the level of extremity is so much higher for the people of history than they would ever be in my actual life. I mean, I'm a wimp and a weakling compared to the peoples of the past. How many of us would be willing to have our tongue ripped out? How about stand 15 feet away from another person trying to shoot you in the face because he was offended by the way you spoke? Could you sell your children into slavery? How about commit Harry Carey and pull your own guts out to save your family's honor? No matter how tough I may feel, I am well aware of the enormous gulf that exists between me and the peoples of the past when it comes to living by extremes. And that brings me to the subject of this podcast series. Now, this is a story that ever since I came across it over 20 years ago, I've been waiting to tell. It involves incredible extremes. Indeed, the type of extremes that all other historical extremes are measured to. And not just one facet of the story is extreme, but multiple levels of the story involve the highest of stakes. This is a story of a tormented young man who faces a world gone mad, attempting to find both love and immortality. Tragically, he will only attain one of them. With one of the most chaotic and deadly societies the world has ever known providing the backdrop, we are going to journey into the man out of time. So let's set the scene. A small man sits alone at a small table. The room is dark. Only a single candle provides illumination, the flickering light throwing shadows across the top of the man's head as he hunches close to a rough piece of paper he is feverishly scribbling on frenetically jabbing the tip into the inkwell to continue his manic writing. The man is young, just barely out of his teens. His small hand feverishly advances across the page. He is silent save for the deep breaths that threaten to extinguish the lone source of light. He knows he needs to write at least three letters and at least as many papers, what is commonly called back then memoirs, all in the span of this single night. He pauses mid-stab and lets out an exasperated sigh and scratches away in his native French. The first letter is addressed to all fellow Republicans, patriots to the cause. It reads, quote, I beg my patriotic friends not to reproach me for dying otherwise than for my country. I die the victim of an infamous coquette and her two dupes. It is a miserable piece of gossip that my life is extinguished. Oh, why die for something so little, for something so contemptible? Heaven is my witness that only constrained and forced have I yielded to provocation, which I have tried to avert by every means. I repent having told a baneful truth to men who were so little able to listen to it calmly. Yet I have told the truth. I take with me to the grave a conscience clear of lies, untainted patriotic blood. Adieu! What kept me alive was the public good. Forgive those who kill me. They are of good faith." Unquote. The second letter is addressed to closer friends in the Republican cause. It reads, quote, My good friends, I have been provoked into a duel by two patriots. It is impossible for me to refuse. I beg your forgiveness for not having informed either of you, but my adversaries have put me on my honor not to inform any patriot. Your task is simple. Prove that I have fought against my will. That is, after having exhausted all means of compromise, and say whether I am capable of lying, even on such a trivial subject as the one in question. Remember me, since fate did not give me long enough life for my country to remember me. I die your friend." Unquote. The last letter will prove to be the hardest. It is not only the longest, as it will include three long memoirs, now that term used at the time for what we called a mathematical proof today, now, the night before fighting for his life, the man races to record the activity of his one and only true love of his life, mathematics. The final letter reads, quote, My dear friends, I have made some new discoveries and analysis. The first concerns the theory of equations, the other's integral functions. In the theory of equations, I have investigated under which conditions the equations are solved by radicals or by formula. This has given me the opportunity to make this theory more profound, and to describe all the transformations possible on an equation even when it is not solvable by a formula. All of this makes for three memoirs, or proofs." Unquote. And the man proceeds to lay his analysis of mathematical equations 
based on their appearance and symmetry, something new in the area of mathematics that will forever change how humans use math. He will put his epoch-making discovery down in a letter under a solitary candle, in the dark, alone. At some point, he scribbles in the margins those four fateful words, Jean le temps, translated as, I have no time. As dawn breaks, the man will leave his room, walk down the street to participate in a duel. He will be shot in the stomach and left to die on the street. He will lay there for almost 20 hours before someone will drag him to a hospital, where he will hang on for another day in misery before dying. A newspaper will print this error-filled story about the duel. Paris, June 1st. Quote, A deplorable duel yesterday has deprived the exact sciences of a young man who gave the highest expectations, but whose precocious fame is nevertheless because of his political activities. The young Évariste Galois, condemned for a year because of a toast proposed at the Vendage de Bourgogne, fought with one of his old friends, a young man like himself, like him a member of the Society of the Friends of People, who was known to have figured equally in a political trial. It was said that love was the cause of the combat. The pistol was the weapon chosen by the two adversaries. They found it very hard because of their old friendship to have to aim at each other, and they left the decision to blind fate. At point-blank range, each of them was armed with a pistol and fired. Only one of those weapons was loaded. Galois was pierced through and through by the bullet of his adversary. He was transported to Cochin Hospital, where he died in about two hours. He was 22 years old, his adversary even younger still, unquote. And with that, 20-year-old... Now, the newspaper got it wrong, among a slew of other errors and inventions that we'll talk about, but... At 20 years old, Évariste Galois, considered to be one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, was dead. His story has fascinated mathematicians and historians ever since. And there are so many reasons why it makes a great story. There's his tender age, 20. There is his contribution to math, basically ushering in the modern world of algebra all by himself. Then there is the world that he lived. I cannot think of another time more chaotic, more batshit crazy than when Galois lived. His short life was dominated by the menacing, all-engrossing French Revolution, a time in human history that is both alien to us and incredibly similar to the current social climate most of us find ourselves in nowadays. Now, the newspaper account that I quoted earlier provides another key component to Galois' story. The component is mystery. Those three letters, taken with the newspaper clipping, provide an extremely confusing picture of the last hours of the man's life. That mystery has spawned many a conspiracy theory, both back then and to this day. No one knows who Galois fought with. No one knows why they fought the duel, the newspaper report notwithstanding. And no one knows why Galois was so willing to die. Now this mystery, like others of its kind in the annals of human history, has led to much hagiography and myth-making. Even though there is plenty of real craziness to go around in the story, there are enough gaps to allow the mind to wander. Was Galois' death the result of a political plot against his life? Did Galois and an accomplice stage the duel and his death in order to draw attention to their political cause? There are real books and papers that have concluded such things are highly probable, though we don't really know. Any certainty one has for why Galois was in a duel for his honor is false certainty. No one knows, or if someone does know, they didn't tell. Hence, we have some really wild conspiracy theories trying to make sense of the mystery of Galois' short life, even shorter time working in mathematics, all at a time of extreme political volatility. Now, I have to admit that I'm also guilty in coming up with wacky theory or two in my day. The life and untimely death of Ariste Galois defines one of my favorite pet theories I like to play with to help explain the unexplainable. Like, how did a nondescript upper-middle-class French teenager become one of the most famous, intriguing, and in terms of advancing the science of math, almost without equal in the history of human thought, all before the age of 21. Well, that's simple when you apply my theory of diachronistic informational control to the young Frenchman's situation. Now, I want to credit the book The Rise and Fall of the Dodo by Neil Stevenson and Nicole Gowand, whose use of the term diachronic, which is the first D in their dodo, to describe the method and use of time travel. That's right, diachronistic informational control, or DIC for short, is a version of time travel that, 
to paraphrase the term diachronic, is to concern oneself with the way in which something, especially information, develops and evolves through time. So at this point, you may be thinking to yourself that my theories are a bit different. Now, you'd be right. I add a little moron to the science. That's what I call a science that I think of on my own. Now, I barely have a high school education, so almost everything that I say has to be understood as being slightly more bona fide than a fortune cookie. Now, that being said, it doesn't stop me from giving birth to some pretty good, pretty moronic ideas. For instance, dick, which first popped into my head when I was watching a movie back in 1993. That was when I thought about a theory of reality that is based on the amount of energy it would take to create a realistic reality. Notice that I didn't say virtual reality because if it was 100% realistic, then there would be nothing virtual about it. Now, on one hand, the answer is self-evident concerning the amount of energy needed for reality to exist. The exact amount of energy that currently exists in the universe is the amount, bro. But on the other hand, back in 1993, I was sitting in a movie theater, pulling my legs up to my chest to get away from the charging T-Rex that was bearing down on Dr. Ian Malcolm as he exhorts the Jeep to go faster. Now, I thought to myself, damn, that dinosaur looks real as shit. I wonder how long it's going to be until we're not going to be able to tell the difference between a special effect and a real image. I knew that what I was seeing was just a computational model of a dinosaur, just the result of processing programming code, breaking it all down to the universal language of computing, binary code, zeros and ones. That led me to the question, would we be able to construct a computer strong enough to crunch the zeros and ones fast enough to create a true reality? Making the probabilities of subatomic particles into solid matter. The amount of energy required to just get us to the basic level of inorganic matter would be immense. I wonder how much energy was used to create the charging T-Rex in Jurassic Park. I bet you could, based on that information, tracking all the energy expanded in the computing process, not to mention the intellectual and physical energy of the humans involved, you could get a figure. Turning around, you could make a correlation, such as X amount of energy generates Y level of reality. For the sake of argument, let's say 1.21 gigawatts was expended to make the T-Rex. From there, you could calculate the increasing complexity of the image as it became more real, more tangible. First, it would be a 3D hologram. Then the hologram would begin to graft or manufacture bits of matter from the environment, eventually becoming a material reality. All along, you'd be able to track the increase in energy, and at the end, when reality is achieved, my hunch is that you will come to a figure, an amount of energy that will be remarkably close to the amount of energy in our universe. Of course, all this takes someone to observe reality and deem it believable or not, and the old tree falling in the forest problem. The endless loop of consciousness and its relationship with reality is always present when we are thinking about anything, especially when we are thinking about deep stuff like this. What came first, consciousness or reality? Now, if that sounds like a bunch of bullshit, then you're mostly correct. I told you, moron science. However, what if you thought of this zany idea in terms of information? As in, all that makes up what we call reality is just the process of processing information. More specifically, the simple but fundamental binary decision of zero or one, yes or no. What if the whole universe is just a giant process of chewing through information? To put it another way, is the universe just made of information and the reality we have is just a result of the waste produced as the universe chews through data? Are we just microbes on the air conditioning vent of some universal server farm? Maybe. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. Let me introduce you to the wonderfully succinct and elegant phrase that sums it all up. It from bit. Now, this is a phrase coined by theoretical physicist John Wheeler in 1989. So it's not that old. Bit in this instance is the simple binary choice of yes or no, zero or one. Bit is a unit of measurement like a foot or a meter. First developed by a guy named Claude Shannon in the 1950s, He's known as the father of information theory, which is a study of fundamental nature of information. So what Shannon was able to do was connect the loss of information that happens when you transmit data. Now think static on a phone call. That static can break up the information that is being sent, can make it hard to understand. That static has an entropic quality to Shannon. Using the term entropy, 
which until then had been used to describe the nature of energy, not information, and energy's tendency to lose power and eventually settle into an equilibrium. You know, simply put, like cold things warm up, hot things cool down, both of them, you know, reaching a stasis at room temperature. The process of losing energy, warming up or cooling down in this instance, have fundamental concepts that are laid out in what are called the laws of thermodynamics. In particular, the second law covers entropy as a measure of the amount of energy in a system that is not able to do work. You know, the energy that is lost during a process. So think of an engine. You know, if it's running, it's giving off heat. That heat is, that's being released into the air is energy, but it's not able to do any work. It's lost. It's going back to equilibrium. What Claude Shannon did is associate not just energy with entropy, but with disorder and randomness in a system. So just going from something controlled to something random is how he visioned entropy, which allowed him to notice that the loss of energy in a system was correlated to the loss of a quality of the information transmission we just talked about. That static on your phone call is the same thing as the heat from that running engine. The more you can contain that entropy to stop the waste heat, to stop the static interference, the more efficient the engine will run and the more clear the phone call will be. Now, in the process of creating a whole new area of mathematical analysis, Claude Shannon defined the principal building block of information, the bit, the flipping or not flipping of a binary switch, zero or one, yes or no. So once information theory hit the streets, it began being applied all over the place. As you would expect, it became one of the most important aspects of the internet age. You ever wonder what internet speeds are all about? What they're talking about when Comcast boasts of fast download speeds? Well, they are talking about information and getting it to you as fast as possible. Now, this is done through data compression. When the data being sent, say a photo you send your aunt in an email, which gets broken down into packets of data, comprised at its core of the same binary code that all computers use, you know, those zeros and ones. Your aunt gets the email, clicks on the photo, and the process is reversed. That's where a computer rebuilds the photo from those zeros and ones. Now, if you're a fan of the show Silicon Valley, then this may sound familiar, as Pied Piper is really just a compression algorithm, a set of instructions that computers will follow to break down and rebuild digital media using the least amount of information possible. Using less info in this process makes it more efficient, mitigates randomness, and makes it faster. This is what makes Pied Piper so special in the show. So back to it from bit. Internet providers were not the only ones who were using information theory successfully. Theoretical physicists like Wheeler started to see information and the passing of it back and forth, the simple yes, I will receive this info, or no, I will reject it, as the core function not only of digital processes, but for the entire universe. So integral was information to the universe, according to Wheeler, that all of reality was just a process of crunching the zeros and ones, the yeses and the noes. It, reality as we know it, from bit, the processing of information. At a conference in Tokyo in 1989, John Wheeler first spoke of this. Quote, I, like other searchers, attempt formulation after formulation of the central issues and here present a wider overview taking for working hypothesis the most effective one that has survived this winnowing, it from bit. Otherwise put, every it, every particle, every field of force, even the space-time continuum itself, derives its function, its meaning, its very existence entirely, even in some contexts indirectly, from the apparatus elicited answers to yes or no questions, binary choices, bits. It from bit symbolizes the idea that every item of the physical world has at bottom, at a very deep bottom in most instances, an immaterial source and explanation, that what we call reality arises in the last analysis from the posing of yes-no questions and the registering of equipment-evoked responses. In short, that all things physical are information theoretic in origin, and this is a participatory universe. Unquote. I was pretty excited when I first read that. It was probably at least 20 years after seeing Jurassic Park that I came across Wheeler and his theory. I mean, I wasn't a total moron. That's what it said to me. Someone else had similar thoughts. From the book Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood, which came out in 2010, 
author James Gleick puts it like this, quote, The bit is a fundamental particle of a different sort, not just tiny but abstract, a binary digit, a flip-flop, a yes or no. It is insubstantial, yet as scientists finally come to understand information, they wonder whether it may be primary, more fundamental than matter itself. They suggest that the bit is the irreducible kernel and that information forms the very core of existence. Bridging the physics of the 20th and 21st centuries, John Archibald Wheeler, the last surviving collaborator of both Einstein and Niels Bohr, puts this manifesto in oracular monosyllables. It from bit. Information gives rise to every it, every particle, every field of force, even the space-time continuum itself. This is another way of fathoming the paradox of the observer, that the outcome of an experiment is affected, or even determined, when it is observed. Not only is the observer observing, she is asking questions and making statements that must ultimately be expressed in discrete bits. What we call reality, Wheeler writes coyly, arises in the last analysis from posing of yes-no questions. He adds, all things physical are information theoretic in origin, and this is a participatory universe. The whole universe is thus seen as a computer, a cosmic information processing machine. So how much does it compute? How fast? How big is its total information capacity? Its memory space? What is the link between energy and information? What is the energy cost of flipping a bit? These are hard questions, but they are not as mystical and metaphorical as they sound. Physicists and quantum information theorists, a new breed, struggle with them every day. They do the math and produce tentative answers, such as the bit count of the cosmos, however it is figured, is 10 raised to a very large power. They look anew at the mysteries of thermodynamic entropy and at those notorious information swallowers' black holes. Tomorrow, Wheeler declares, we will have learned to understand and express all of physics in the language of information. Unquote. Now, I practically shit my pants when I first read that. But that is how it works with my pet theories. Even when they are totally moronical, they sometimes have a way of working out into something real. So information and its fundamental power was something that I have been thinking about for some time, and it turns out that though I was using my version of moron science to come up with my Jurassic Park theory of reality, it turns out that I wasn't that far off. As our buddy Dr. Ian Malcolm is fond of saying, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man, man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. That brings us back to our boy, Evariste. Now, I've been waiting over two decades to tell the story of Evariste Galois. His short life spans the chasm between the ancient world and the modern. His incredible mathematical intuition and visionary approach to working with numbers was one of the true miracle moments in the history of human thought. Basically, it doesn't get more creative than Galois, ever, in any endeavor you can consider. His insight into how math works was and is groundbreaking, original, and the very definition of genius. All of this in just 20 short years. But what if I told you that much of that time, over 15 years of it, Galois was a complete nondescript non-entity that neither understood a lick of math or was able to participate in revolutionary politics? You heard me right. All of the math and almost all of the political portion of Galois' story takes place in a little less than five years. In just a little over 1,800 days, the teenage Galois will become a leading voice in the Republican movement, publicly threatening the king's life earning him notoriety and a six-month stint in the pokey. At the same time, he will also spend those hectic, terrifying days dragging the equation, one of math's foundational concepts, once and for all out of the age of darkness and chaos, and literally, single-mindedly ushering in the world of modern math. So I ask you this question. Is it more likely that a nobody from nowhere with nothing in the way of a prodigious skill set became one of the greatest scientific minds literally overnight and then almost as quickly disappeared from the face of the earth? Or is it more likely that sometime in the future, humanity has determined a way to send information through time to influence, negate, and sometimes create ideas? You know, you could use that to create stunningly exceptional events such as Everiste's transition from average to awesome. Well, that's how my pet theory goes. Everiste Galois was victim of a time possession, or had his mind hacked from the future, or in the vernacular of the discipline, he got dicked. 
meaning he was a successful diachronic informational control operation. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. It's a solution that helps answer all of the hows and whys of Galois' wackiness in the simple fact that for about half a decade, someone else was, at least at times, at the controls of the young schoolmaster's son. Now, my theory is hardly original. I mean, a classic sci-fi like The Big Time by Fritz Lieber and more recently The Rise and Fall of Dodo. Both of those books explore the idea of using time as a weapon, at least logistically, being able to allocate resources using time as in joining old battles from history and trying to change history of said battle, therefore changing history and who writes said history. And as far as Dodo goes, they've come the closest to my theory. In the book, the Dodo organization uses witchcraft to send specially trained people back in time, usually historians, uh, to gather intel, influence events, and generally advance an agenda by planting stuff, literally material stuff, uh, sometimes mimetic stuff, in the past that will be able to be utilized by them in their present. That last part is similar to what I'm talking about in some ways. Now, I, my theory of Dick goes further, and it is based on actual science, more on science, but actual science and not witchcraft, and it deals exclusively with information. Now, I know you, you're scoffing, time-traveling information, really, but before you commit me to a certain lunacy, keep, my, keep in mind my T-Rex revelation that turned out to bear some actual fruit in the academic world of theoretical and astronomical physics. I may not be 100% right, but that doesn't mean I'm 100% wrong. Dick does involve a form of time travel, so it is fair that there may be a healthy dose of skepticism on your part. Now, to help assuage that skepticism, let me clear some things up. First, I am not sending people back in time. I mean, that's so Terminator, am I right? The laws of physics don't really allow for us to achieve anything like time travel we are used to seeing on movies and TV anyway, even if we can access 1.21 gigawatts of juice. Heck, the movie Avengers Endgame had to clear up all that time travel bullshit that we've been fed over the last 40 years or so. And they didn't even really time travel. They turned the quantum world into really the world's smallest subway system. But what if we turn to our new friend, it from bit, and see if he can offer a more plausible explanation, theoretically, of course, of doing dick. Information in the form of binary choices are the very foundation of the universe. Being information, it may be able to work recursively, meaning it can talk about itself. It can be used to analyze and examine the choices it has made in the past. Theoretically, one could use that recursive power to pinpoint specific groups of choices, say, human thoughts, like GPS coordinates for consciousness. With all that, it may be possible to focus on a very specific set of yes or no choices. Now, at the same time, if what physicists like Wheeler and Kip Thorne, whose theories were popularized in the film Interstellar, are right, and some information can survive passing through a black hole, then there may be a chance to not only locate ideas slash choices, but to edit, insert, and delete binary choices as well. If you could do this, you could change history. You could create something in the past that affects your present simply by affecting the choices that are being made. If you can do this accurately and with consistency, you may even be able to take over the thought processes of someone for a certain amount of time. I mean, what if you're sitting there in the future and you're in desperate need of a solution to a complex problem and you realize that there just isn't anything in the human intellectual toolbox to give you answers and you need them now? Why not just human flesh search engine it? Meaning, why not just put the brains of the past to good use? Send the germ of the idea back to some unsuspecting person, someone without any previous bias concerning the subject, a clean slate, so to speak, tabla rasa, and let them put in the hard work. Their success in the past, even if it took decades, would mean an immediate solution for you in your present. It would just be there, the solution, probably already being used. So this is how my diachronic informational control would work. I sort of envision it like a particle beam, emitting basic binary information, maybe even piggybacking on some super light, super fast particle like a gluon or a quark, and aim it right at a black hole. Spray the entire area with the beam, and I don't even think you'd have to be very specific with it. It would be sort of a matter of like saturating the subatomic world with, with a beam of dick particles, hoping some of them stick. And it's like a volume game, like seeding clouds to make them rain. For the hell of it, you could throw in some spooky action at a distance, also known as entanglement. This weird feature of electrons, and I think it's only electrons, but it could be other particles too, is a young and fast-moving science, so I'm not sure. 
Entangled electrons will behave as if connected, meaning when one moves, the other will move in the exact same manner. And here's the spooky part. The two particles will move instantaneously over, theoretically, any distance. And I do mean any, across the universe even. At this point, scientists have only been able to entangle electrons and have them do their weird little dance at a distance of a couple hundred miles, which is pretty astounding in its own right. But so far, the theory is working out as fact in the material world, so stay tuned. Entanglement could be the internet of the 21st century, meaning a groundbreaking technology that transforms reality as we know it. But don't rule out a cameo role for entanglement in the theory of Dick. So Evariste Galois may have been under the influence of information from the future that gave him insight and skills to completely change the world of mathematics forever, and just when he was achieving notoriety and fame, his life was cut short in an ill-conceived, mysterious duel. Now, of course, since I'm in full conspiracy mode, I can say that his death surely smacks of a coordinated hit job. I mean, tying up loose ends like we see in any type of covert operation. I mean, what if Galois had remained alive? What more startling before-their-time insights would he have had? Was that why he was put out there in that street on that late May morning in 1832? And this is where the dick really shines. If a connection was actually established with someone in the past via some sort of entanglement, or we were able to GPS our way to a level of specificity that allowed us to know who we had under the influence of our dick? In either case, we would be able to ascertain the details of the environment that that person we are dicking is currently existing in. And if that was the case, and you wanted to change the world but be able to tie up those loose ends, what better place to execute something like a dick operation than a place and time as chaotic and uncertain as the French Revolution? I mean, who cares at the death of a promising exact scientist Life was cut short in a senseless duel. Who cares if no one knows if it was for love or country or notoriety or some other motive? Who cares because it was during the French fucking revolution and nothing made any sense during those amazing crazy years? For now, my theory of dick is all mine. At least as far as I can tell. The aforementioned books, The Big Time, and The Rise and Fall of Dodo are out there, but from a hard science perspective, there is a little support for my theory at all. But back in 1993 there was little support for the nascent four-year-old theory of it from bit either. So don't be surprised if in a couple decades and you start hearing about strange new technologies with terms like entanglement and diachronic in them. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Now, as we go through all the details of the many lives of Galois, the mundane schoolmaster's son, the passionate young man searching for love, the political rebel and criminal, and the surprised mathematical genius, you are going to be thinking about diachronic information control. It will be there to fill in those gaps that history has left out. You may find out that my theory of the dicking of a young Frenchman's brain may be the best way to explain the inexplicable parts of this story. So let's get to that story. And in order to do it justice, I'm going to spend some time talking about the twin pillars of Galois' life, both coincidentally happening to be going through a revolution in his lifetime. His country, his beloved France, and his true love, mathematics. Galois himself will be at the center of both of the storms that will be raging, attempting at once to bring his dreams of a Republican France, free of monarchy, nobility, and the church, that being the Catholic Church, as well as fulfilling his promise as a mathematical genius destined to be one of the greatest innovators in the history of abstract thought. The genius of Galois was that he could see the world of math as more than just a recipe, a series of steps to work through to achieve a desired result. While the practical side of math was not lost on him, he grew frustrated as his skills increased. He wasn't running into a problem of his aptitude. There's reason to believe that there's nothing in the world of math that would be outside the ken of that French mathematician. So much so that he just went ahead and invented new methods of doing math that no one had ever thought of before. Now, once Galois progressed to the ceiling of the current state of the art in math, much like his political outlook, instead of just settling for the status quo, he just blew right through the ceiling by asking questions no one had asked before. Now, some of these questions, and more importantly, the answers that he got, were so out of left field that many of his contemporaries in the math world completely missed all semblance of the point of what he was trying to do. Now, his fight for recognition and legitimacy would be full of disappointment and resentment. While his work in math was of the highest order, deserving of accolades and reverence, instead, the young firebrand discovered a world deaf to his genius, mostly due to factors that he had absolutely nothing to do with, especially the veracity of the work he produced and everything to do with of who he was, and probably most insidiously, of what the young Galois professed to believe politically. Now, in the year 2020, in all its awfulness, 
one of the most unnerving facets of life is that we are living in a post-fact world. For many, this may seem something new, but history tells us it's not. The academic world of France in the 1830s was an era of the most learned of men putting ideology before methodology, political and in some case actual survival ahead of fact and truth. When shit gets crazy and so far nothing in the West got quite as crazy as the French Revolution, one of the first dominoes to fall was the inability of either side of the conflict to agree on anything, which led to the belief that each side was lying, which led to suspicion and paranoia, which led to people literally ripping other people apart with their bare hands, thousands and thousands of innocent people being beheaded and millions dying and being chewed up and spit out by the unbelievably destructive Napoleonic Wars. So the next time you laugh at a flat earther or shake your head at an anti-vaxxer or ignore the downright apocalyptic insanity of QAnon, which, as an aside, has 22 candidates on Republican primary tickets this election cycle. Now, there's a good chance we're going to have someone in Congress who believes that Tom Hanks is a blood-sucking pederast and that Donald Trump is an avenging angel sent from heaven to kill all the sex offenders. And by the way, the QAnon candidate that recently won her primary in Delaware, while also being someone who buys into Q, she also happens to support white supremacy, believes the flat earth is flat, and that vaccines are a form of mind control. Remember, this is how things always start. Collective societal dissonance. Everything that you say makes them mad. Everything that they say makes your blood boil. When the French went through it, it lasted for almost 75 years and cost millions of lives. We are just starting the process of hating each other. A few more years is all that it will take to make us see the other side as less than human. And then, my friends, the gloves are off. If this seems a little bit of extreme viewpoint, well, guilty as charged. But I have precedent to back up my assertions. Rome, in the age of our friend Marcus Tullius Cicero, found itself in similar straits as the French and as we do now. His world, the Roman Republic, was on its last legs. Men like Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar were jockeying for position, using the people of the governance of Rome as weapons. Cicero was on Pompey's side, ostensibly the side of the Republicans, against the tyrant and dictator Caesar. In the days leading up to war, Cicero wrote, quote, All foreign affairs are tranquilized. The only plots against us are within our own walls. The dangerous within, the enemy is within. For on the one side are fighting for modesty, on the other wantonness. On the one chastity, on the other uncleanness. On one honesty, on the other fraud. And on one honor, and the other baseness. Unquote. Now fast forward a couple thousand years, you're in Paris in 1788, you can come across these sentiments in the similar vein of creating an us versus them binary situation. An example like this is from a young country lawyer named Robespierre and his eulogy for a recently deceased fellow barrister named Mercier du Pate. The dead guy is renowned for fighting for the little guy. Now, what was called in France at the time the Third Estate, which were the peasants, the Protestants, the Jews, the laborers, the craftsmen, soldiers that lived in their entire life by the leave of the other two estates, the nobility, First Estate, and the church, the Second Estate. So at the funeral, Robespierre spoke, and he said, quote, He who aspires to the glory of being useful to his fellow citizens, who makes such great and sublime use of his capacities, who dares to say to the powerful of this world, you have committed an injustice, and thus raises himself above other men, must no doubt expect to have dangerous enemies. He must believe that hatred and vengefulness will join with envy to bring him down. That has ever been the fate of great men. Now, Robespierre goes on to ask the question, do you know why there are so many indigents? Is because you hold all the wealth in your greedy hands. Why are this father, this mother, these children exposed to all the rigors of the weather without roof over their heads, suffering all the horrors of hunger? It's because you inhabit sumptuous houses to which your gold attracts everything that can serve your flabbiness and occupy your idleness. It is because your luxury devours the sustenance of a thousand men in a single day. Unquote. Lines were being drawn between pro-liberty Republicans in France and pro-royalty loyalists. The vitriol could spill into private life and even make personal relationships arduous as they would suffer under the weight of which side you found yourself on. A priest named Antoine Calais wrote in 1788 that, quote, even women are attacked by this political contagion and no lover could hope to keep his mistress 
if he didn't adopt her opinions and support her party, unquote. And once the food riot started, political lines that had been merely drawn had coalesced into hardened coalition behavior that let even the most obvious facts to be called into question if they didn't serve to further your chosen coalition's cause. For instance, 19-year-old Lucy Dillon, doing her best Meghan McCain impersonation, she was a relative of an archbishop and married to a general son, whose entourage was caught in a food riot on the way back from a day at the horse races, remarked in letters that she felt that the rioters were just cat's paws of someone behind the scenes paying to make the nobility look bad. So there was fake news and unseen actors in ancient Rome and in revolutionary France. There were conspiracies, plots, and in the end, violence. There came a time when both sides ossified into pseudo-ethnicities, mostly based on income and religion, allowing them both to conduct campaigns of atrocious ethnic cleansing of a sort removing the less-than-human versions of their fellow inhabitants from society. Now, all of this sounds very familiar to most of us in 2020. All over the world, lines are being drawn. Hate is being spewed, and soon, blood will probably flow. The irony of fearing fascism as a new form of Nazism or something is that movements like Nazism are extremely rare, compared to the internal, mostly ethnic strife that most societies will suffer from. For every Hitler... There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of Slobodan Milosevic's and Robespierre's throughout history. And we need to be wary of ourselves. The side that we are currently on has a very good chance of proving to be capable of horrendous acts of violence. History is full of that too, the righteous feeling backed into a corner and therefore being able to rationalize all sorts of horrors in the name of victory and the cause. In many ways, Galois was born into a world not unlike our own, dominated by cognitive dissonance and obtuse arguments, designed simply to win and unlikely to provide any real truth or justice. His world was just ruled by the guillotine, while ours is ruled by the social media. For now. At the same time he was working on some of the most complex mathematics of his time, Galois was also participating wholeheartedly in the political chaos that was France of the 1820s and 30s. Now I'm going to state right now, before starting the research for this subject, I had absolutely no clue how absolutely crazy France was back then. I fully admit to thinking that the French Revolution was very similar to the American Revolution, and why not? They occurred within a few years of each other. France directly supported the American cause, and in some cases, the very same people who assisted us here in the United States participated in their own revolution, guys like Lafayette. But though they shared many of the same issues, and both the colonists and the French Republicans supported each other in their efforts to overthrow their current way of living, what the French called the ancient regime. You know, that is the world of kings and queens, nobility, peasants, knights, and all the stuff we think of as part of storybooks. But for people living in the late 18th century in the West, it was very much a reality. A reality that was in stark relief to what was also being called the Age of Enlightenment, or the dawn of the Industrial Age. Those two descriptions are just two sides of the same coin called progress. Capitalism was redistributing wealth in a manner that frankly could never have been done through traditional methods like coercion, diplomacy, and war. Philosophers such as Rousseau were laying the groundwork for social and political revolution based on equality and liberty of the peasant and working class. Now, once you get past the surface, though, the similarities between the U.S. and French revolutions end. The greatest difference between the two is one of scale. Our piddling skirmish with the British is but a footnote in the all-encompassing, world-changing history of the French, fight for liberty, equality, and fraternity. The French Revolution went through so many iterations and reboots that it's easy to get overwhelmed with its scope of what was happening. That's the second difference between the two revolutions. Motive. Taxation without representation is actually a grievance shared by both Americans and French. The difference is the systems that were being challenged. For the colonists in America, it was a very corporate environment dominated by merchants and business owners at the core of the conflict with the British. Their grievance is specific to the amount of representation the colonists have in the people side of the British government. Remember, England being a constitutional monarchy since 1688. This meant that the colonists were used to having rights, used to having political representation. So much so, they were willing to fight a war to achieve those rights when they lost them as colonists. The rights existed for them to strive for, rights that should have been granted to them in the first place. Now, for the French, there was nothing of the sort. They were still living in a feudal world, 
the world of the medieval. The vast majority of all the people of France, over 28 million of them at the time of the storming of the Bastille in 1789, had no rights at all. They lived as peasants, serfs, laborers, artisans, craftsmen, and teachers. This class, sometimes referred to, as I said, as the third estate, with the king and the rest of the nobility occupying the first estate, lived solely for providing the first and second estates with all the wants and desires we have come to expect from royalty. To lend a little bit more perspective, the royalty in France was based, in fact, on one family, the Bourbons, or Bourbons, who held the French throne for over 800 years. That's right, over eight centuries, France was ruled by the same damn family. It boggles the mind at the depth of attachment something like that can create in a populace. Generation after generation swearing allegiance, dying for the very life of one man, the Bourbon king. So the French Revolution was more than about attaining equal representation with fellow countrymen. It was far more than that. It was a true evolution in that sense, a changing of the guard, the modern world, or at least the thoughts that help carve out what we take for granted concerning rights and liberty for all mankind. The French Revolution was for all the marbles. An ancient world, almost a millennium ruled by the same family, was attacked from within and toppled in the name of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Or was it? More on that in a bit. The American Revolution was a disagreement amongst like-minded parties. The French Revolution was a zero-sum game of absolutism, the ultimate blood feud, a duel to the death over the very fabric of what defines us as human beings. The stakes do not get any higher. And if that was not all, the French Revolution had one more aspect that the American Revolution lacked, and that there was what was called the second estate in feudal France, and that is the Catholic Church. Now, the church was as important, and in some instances, more important than the nobility. They received an enormous amount of largesse from the third estate in return for providing spiritual guidance. But like any institution that consists of hundreds of thousands of members, corruption was a big problem, and the inability for the clergy of France to swear allegiance first to the country and then to religion caused a tremendous rift that would never heal and lead to some of the worst of the travesties of the time. But there I go, getting way ahead of it. Just a little dive there into the French Revolution provides a glimpse of what it must have been like to live as Galois did and his family had to. As the year 2020 makes a strong case for the, the worst year ever, I think of what it must have been like to live during times like France in the early 1800s. Imagine a year like 2020 that lasted for over 40 years, and that, in addition to all the rancor, ill will, poor behavior, there was disease, starvation, a child mortality rate of almost 30%, war, torture and inquisitions, and just untold quantities of violence and death. Blood would literally run in the streets every day. Now, it does help put things in perspective. So the big picture, the French Revolution was completely off the rails nutso. So we are going to spend some time with it to make sure we fully get why Galois was so head over heels committed to his cause. Why should someone with so much going for him decide to put his life at risk in the first place? What would it take for you to throw caution to the wind and put your life on the line in the form of standing face to face with someone and attempting to put a large hole through each other? Galois was not crazy. He was just living in a crazy time. And the more I learn about his crazy time, the more I feel that we are just treading over the same worn stones of the past mistakes made by our Gallic liberty seekers. Learning about France and the Revolution will not only give us insight into the man Evariste Galois, but it will also prove illuminating to our current political state of affairs. And I am going to warn you that it's not a very optimistic picture that history paints for us. If we are truly repeating this history, then we are right now standing on the precipice of something truly terrifying. Now, it may already be too late, but it is worth learning a little bit of the anatomy of a culture change, as we are no doubt going through one right now. And I'm doing a little dance here to usher in the learn from past mistakes gods to take pity on us and snap us out of our current destructive inertia. So because of that, I'm not really ready to talk about France and their revolution at this point. I'm going to turn to something altogether apolitical for a while and talk about math. Woohoo! I bet you're just leaping out of your chair with excitement. Math talk. Yes, please. Can I have some more? And I'm like, yes, you can. Now, this may not be a popular opinion for most people, but I think math is awesome. While the mathematicians and scientists of the world certainly agree with me, the vast majority of the rest of the world 
Think like math as some sort of, like, dragon. There's a healthy respect for the power of a dragon. You know, sacrifices and alms administered, and hopefully things remain peaceful and no one gets burned and eaten alive. Now, for many people, math is like this dragon. And that was for me for years. I was and am terrible at doing math. I flunked geometry twice in high school. I would get full-fledged math anxiety and never progress past basic algebra. By any measure, I was a failure at math, and believe you me, the feeling was mutual. Now, that lasted until I took an introductory math course at my local community college. Now, it was basic 8th grade algebra stuff, but I got an A, the only A I was ever to receive in math in my entire life. Now, one of the reasons I found a second life with math was I had a good teacher. He took notice of my enthusiasm and challenged me to learn more and assigned to me to write a paper on something math-related. I went to the library and got the most academic-looking math history book I could get my hands on. I read that damn book from cover to cover, and by the time I was finished, I was wholeheartedly in love with the concept of mathematics. The elegance and power of the numbers and the impossible adventure that is humanity's intractable bond with math. I was hooked. I was still a lousy practitioner of math, my recent A notwithstanding, but my passion for discovering the origins of mathematical achievement, how said achievement came to affect the material world, and most interesting to me, the men, for it was always men, who worked tirelessly to achieve said achievement. Just from a dramatic angle, the history of mathematics is full of the zaniest, kookiest, most miserable, profoundly intelligent people you're probably going to meet anywhere. And is where I met the subject of this podcast series, our tasty little Frenchman, Evariste Galois. Now, you've already gotten a taste of the times that Galois lived through, and he did spend the last years of his life deeply entrenched in the politics of his day. But through it all, it was his love and desire to do math. And in a lot of ways, they seemed like strange bedfellows, mathematics and politics. And in fact, they were even stranger back in Galois' day. Mathematics, specifically algebra, was seen by many as a game, parlor tricks, and a puzzle to occupy and entertain. Of course, not everyone felt that way. There were plenty of serious mathematicians, but most of them self-isolated when it came to politics. That was not possible for many of the French academics in the time of the all-engulfing, polarizing age of revolution. Now, there is strong evidence that Galois' parents thought little of math and their son's infatuation with it. The simple fact that he was homeschooled and had never even cracked a single mathematics book until he was sent to boarding school was clear indication of how they felt about numbers and their place in early 19th century France. That is in stark contrast to the elevated status of math in our world. Words were what mattered most to Galois and his countrymen, stirring the passions and working to blow down the ancient regime of the Bourbons with words designed to mock, inspire, shame, and in the end, kill. I mean, Galois himself will be the victim of his very words. Now, luckily for us, we have flipped the script on the whole killer words, meaningless numbers thing. I mean, is there anything more worthless these days than words? And on the other hand, numbers have been elevated to the lofty perch of absolute truth and are probably the most relevant attribute of most modern societies. I mean, what isn't controlled by some machine at this point, and machines are nothing but design junk without the mathematics of its programming? Numbers rule, words drool. Now, there is good reason why we have changed our tune when it comes to numbers and words. Math works. Words do not, at least not a healthy portion of the time. And when it comes to manufacturing, robotics, the internet, agriculture, transportation, logistics, the military, the police, marketing, I mean, I literally could go on and on. What makes them all work in our modern world? Certainly isn't words. And not only is math practically indispensable to our modern world, it's also helpful to us when it comes to things like uncertainty and chance. No longer sacrificing goats for things. We can actually use math to figure things out. I mean, math makes the mysterious less so by giving us answers we can use. Take, for instance, the relatively new concept developed in the late 1990s by Princeton astrophysicist Richard Gott that he calls the Copernican Principle. The genesis of the concept is it's named after the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus. Now, he's credited with popularizing the heliocentric model of our solar system during the late Renaissance of the early 16th century. And is the simple fact that we, as humans, as beings that perceive the world in a particular way with our five senses, are not in any way special. We are literally not the center of the cosmos. We are but insignificant masses of water and carbon hurtling through space on a hunk of rock. No more, 
no less. Now, God likened this lack of specialness when we, as non-special entities that are afforded no additional benefits than anything else in the universe, whether it be a tree, clock, the internet, a Broadway play, or a galaxy far, far away. What God saw was inherent in this non-specialness was the fact that when we encounter something, we are, probabilistically speaking, highly unlikely to be there at the very beginning of that thing or at the very end of that thing. In most cases, 95% of the time, in fact, we encounter something like the internet or the National Football League sometime after its genesis and sometime before its ending. Now, God arrived at the 95% number by acknowledging our lack of privileged access to the beginning and the end of something and removing the first 2.5% from the start and the last 2.5% from the end of something. This leaves a total of 95% of a thing's duration in which you can encounter it. Now, once you arrive at that conclusion, just a matter of applying a little algebra to the process, and you get some interesting results. Let's take a look at ancient Rome. In the time of the Republic again, specifically, let's look at the year 101 BC. That was the year Julius Caesar was born. If one was to get that sinking feeling in their stomach upon seeing a baby Caesar and think, this is the babe that will grow into the man who might bring down the Republic. Now, with God's Copernican principle, you can get a pretty good guess of just how short and how long you can expect the Roman Republic to stick around. So let's do the math. The Romans killed their last king in 509 BC. So by the time that Caesar was born, it had been a republic for 408 years. Using the Copernican principle, you can take that 408 years and multiply it by 95 to get the maximum duration that one could expect the Roman Republic to last. Now, within a 95% certainty, and that is about 38,885 years. Now, to gather the least amount of time to expect the Roman Republic to last, you just divide 408 by 95, and you get 4.3 years or so. Now, if you're wanting to be hyper-prepared, you could use that 4.3-year estimate of the minimum time left for the Republic and make sure to be far away when the dung hits the front. Now, of course, you are working off a 95% probability of that happening, which does leave quite a gap. I mean, statistically speaking, 5% is large and provides ample room for something outside the predictive model to occur. But 95% is pretty good odds. If I told you that I had a fixed coin that would land heads 95% of the time, would you feel confident betting on it? How about if I told you there's a 95% chance of a pot of gold being in your closet when you wake up in the morning? Would you go to bed confident that you could find gold when you woke up? Now, if we check the tail of the tape, the Roman Republic ended in or around 27 BC. So a mere 73 years after the birth of Caesar, well within the 4.3 to 38,000 or so range that the Copernican principle predicted. Now, the Copernican principle is a pretty solid piece of math that can be utilized by the average schmo to help us make better decisions. For instance, are you prepared for the end of the internet? According to itself, the internet has been around for roughly 52 years. Applying the Copernican principle, we found out at a minimum, the internet will be gone in five and a half months. Now, book lovers like myself will have at least six more years of new books being printed at minimum. So I got a little time to get my pulp on. Now, obviously, that is just an infinitesimal example of the helpfulness of math. I did clever little stuff like that. For the rest of the world, math powers are respected for their ability to land our airplanes, to determine the weather, and to chew through enormous amounts of data to provide insight into, well, math helps us chew through data, but our biased and lazy brains still make a mess of understanding what data tells us. Now that is changing with stuff like deep AI or artificial intelligence, quantum neural networks, and advanced algorithmic thinking, which for the time being, I'm still putting air quotes. Right now, the whole machines being able to think is an extremely fluid situation. Now you may think I've gone a little off the reservation with my math talk. What does this have to do with a hot-headed French mathematician who lived and died almost 200 years ago? A mathematician who basically flunked out of school, who failed embarrassingly in multiple attempts to gain access to the most prestigious school in France, and whose own work in mathematics was overlooked, ignored, and suppressed during his short life. In many ways, Evariste Galois is a mystery. The basic details of his life, however, are well known. His birth, his death, his family, his schooling, his friends, politics. But the one area that really remained a mystery throughout is Galois and his relationship with math. 
Namely, how in the hell was he able to do what he did? Evariste Galois almost single-handedly wrested the world of algebra from the wastelands of hobbyists and academics and placed it firmly in the real world. Galois freed mathematics, allowing it to be seen as something universal. Everything can be represented mathematically, and not just in the clunky etchings of Euclidean geometry, but in the much more flexible mathematical language of algebra. Once you can make everything a number, you can then represent that thing abstractly as a mathematical equation or set of equations. Once you have coded things into their mathematical equivalent, you can begin to discover truths about them simply by working the numbers. And this is what makes math so seductive. When used in this manner to uncover hidden truths about the world and how it works by applying formulas, or in the vernacular of the discipline, by applying radicals, which is math for formula. We are able to use math like this to leverage the information stored in each thing, each group of things to be more precise, all thanks to Evariste Galois. His invention, his discovery, what is now called Galois groups, allowing algebra to carve out a place in math as the math that works, because Galois groups do work. So we will start this podcast series. We'll look back at the interesting and dramatic history of algebra. I know, just what everyone wants to hear. But stick with me on this. You will find the history of math as interesting as me. I bet on it. Once we catch up to Evariste, we'll then step back and work through the chaos and carnage of the French Revolution. As I mentioned, there is no way to come to any sense of Galois' life until you have some concept of what is actually happening in his world. I guarantee you have no idea how truly terrifying it must have been to live during those years. Now, with the background laid out, we will then dive headfirst into the life of Evariste Galois, his crazy, albeit short life, his quest for love, his desire to be the greatest mathematician in history, his passion for his Republican politics, and inevitably the honor morality that took his life. All the while, seeing if my theory of Dick can stand up on its own. I'm excited to get to know one of the most interesting men in history. I hope you are too. Getting to know Evariste Galois and the worlds that he loved is truly one of the great stories I have ever encountered. I'm happy to extend the knowledge of this fantastic person who so much wanted to be remembered, but felt at the end of his life that he had just not lived quite long enough. And he says so as much. He wrote in the second of those three letters he penned the night before he died, quote, Remember me, since fate did not give me a long enough life for my country to remember me, unquote. So we will remember you, Evariste Galois, and the fantastic story of your short life, a life that is often summed up with the four words he himself scribbled into the margins, one of those last letters, je n'ai pas le temps, I have no time. Hey, when I hear those words now, after working through my diachronical information control theory, I'm struck by a thought. What if those four words meant something different? I mean, they've always been understood as the lament of someone facing a temporal cessation, running out of time. But I believe they can be interpreted as a wholly different way. After all, was that a declaration of running out of time? Or was it braggadocio? Instead of a 20-year-old who fears death crying, I have no time, it could be a super smart future person connected to said 20-year-old via dick stating smugly, I have no time. So it appears that Galois could be the man out of time.